Hi, it's Arjun Murthy with episode two of the Super Spike podcast. Today, I will focus on key highlights of the second ROCE deep dive post from Fakewell IRRs and Capital Surplus to ROCE and Capital Discipline. Super Spike podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any of your favorite podcast players that use those feeds. With that, let me get right to the point and address what I know is the pushback of my view that Shale 2.0 for the coming decade will be meaningfully, meaningfully more profitable for EMPs than was Shale 1.0 of last decade. Um, I know what y'all are thinking. EMPs have never made money. Never, ever. Go back decades. There may be a few exceptions, but as a group, uh, these aren't the discipline return-focused companies like we saw at times, uh, certainly back in the 1990s with the majors and some of the domestic oils. Uh, Y'all are thinking money is cheap, uh, capital will come back, especially if you have a little bit of an oil price cycle, and that this is a capital-intensive, fast-decline business. It's not like those legacy, long-lived international oil fields that drove better super-major profitability. Uh, lastly, I think there's a lot of concern how ESG, climate, and some of the anti-oil actions of the Biden-Harris administration uh, will keep this sector out of favor. And l let me bucket the, I, I think, the positives going forward into four big buckets. First, I think on returns on capital, free cash flow, and dividends, more management teams are doing the math to not just give us what were ridiculous well-level returns, uh, they're now doing the math to full cycle ROCE. I, I think we're done with drill, baby, drill. Uh, and frankly, as companies have announced various capital return strategies, the stocks have reacted well. Um, there's nothing like the kind of positive, virtuous feedback loop you get from announcing free cash flow, dividends, and having your stock price go up. Uh, secondly, I think this notion that somehow ESG climate or even uh, politicians that dislike oil and gas, that it's negative. This is a bizarro world sector. What's good is bad, and what's bad is good. The fact that those groups, to varying degrees, are putting pressure on the sector is good for keeping capital away. Less capital, more discipline, less supply, better returns. It's, it's I think, as straightforward as that. Third key point, the Permian majors have emerged as a group thanks to consolidation over the last few years. You now have the most important oil basin consolidated into a, a handful of mostly larger, uh, some cases integrated, some cases simply large cap E&P companies. And, and I think you're going to see a different business model out of these companies. This business no longer is being driven by the mid-cap EMPs or the high-yield debt finance boom of last decade, where companies were just drilling essentially random wells uh, without a full-cycle thought process. The bigger companies will take a, quote, full-field development approach, uh, like you might see in international projects to the Permian, and I think that's going to be a, a key driver of better profitability. More responsible companies with full-cycle approaches will lead to better returns. And then ultimately, I think the ESG and climate pressures are also very good. And getting away from the capital starvation angle of it, if you're focused on ESG, let's say as an example, you want to reduce your methane intensity. That means you're going to ensure that natural gas takeaway capacity is available. You're going to think about your development on a full field, full cycle basis, and you're going to ensure that either some combination of oil prices or cash flow or whatever are sufficiently high to recover the totality of those costs. In this example, 
I would say the ESG and climate pressures are actually going to be good for industry profitability to the extent you can't just drill a well and hope for the best. So let's go back to why shale 1.0 failed. Um, in a nutshell, I would blame it on the complete failure of the well IRR model. And I think some of you know this. Companies generally promised that at a $50-ish long-term oil price, they would generate somewhere from between a 30, 50, 75, even in some cases, 100% internal rate of return on the drilling of shale wells. Everyone claimed to have high-quality acreage. They all claimed to have a 10-year inventory of these high-quality drilling locations. And frankly, the market, investors, street analysts, value these companies on net asset value. Uh, and so if you're a company and you think your wells have a high internal rate of return and the street is valuing you on net asset value, you're going to be highly motivated to drill the wells as quickly as possible. Based on these definitions and this framework, growth was perceived to actually create value. It's obviously ridiculous in hindsight and the results don't bear it out, but I think that was the thought process. The, the big problem, of course, is that by only looking at the well cost, a whole bunch of other spending was not included. Acreage additions, bad wells, uh, heterogeneity in res reservoir performance, delays in hooking up wells, midstream infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And while some of that stuff was outsourced, uh, the costs are still real. All of this approach led to actually pretty abysmal results. If you look at just 2016 to 2019, Returns on capital were 0.7%, and oil actually averaged $54 a barrel. So at the oil price that was more or less promised, this business was not for profit. And you could look at some different mix of years, include 2015, include the COVID year, don't include it. It doesn't matter. The results were simply awful. Um, what I think is really striking is that in 2018, when WTI averaged $65 a barrel, uh, the return on capital is about 9%. So in a, in a year where the oil price was well above what these well IRR promises were made of, you had at best a cost of capital return. EMP companies over the 2016 to 19 period reinvested 130%, 130% of their cash flows. They spent more than they took in. Uh, they borrowed, they drew it on cash, they did equity offerings. And again, the results were pretty poor. I, I will say that for long-time investors or analysts, I think people know there's always been a disconnect between project-level IRRs and returns on capital for, for anyone in the upstream. But it was much worse in shale 1.0. And why, why is that? So if you look at an oil field, say in Canada's oil sands or offshore, when you do the project analysis in those other situations, you tend to include most of the costs that are incurred. So we'll use the example of an offshore field. You've got a production platform, you've got wells to drill, you've got processing facilities on the platform, you have some gathering or pipelines onshore or to a tanker, you might have the tanker costs, you may not. You may have an onshore receiving terminal, you may not. But overall, the bulk of the project costs, you're going to have to incur. In shale, that was not the case. The focus is really on, if I'm an EMP company, I'm going to focus most intently on just the drilling and completion of wells. Then everything else beyond that, because this was occurring in Texas and the onshore U.S. environment, 
which is otherwise pretty mature, lots of different types of companies out there. Everything downstream from drilling the wells was de facto outsourced, whether the cost still existed, but from a company perspective, they didn't focus on it. And so you had a, a particularly wide gap, therefore, between the project IRRs and what I'm going to call the full cycle returns. Um, I think this is more true the smaller you get in company size. I think when you look at the larger companies, there was more of the mindset of treating this as a full cycle, full field type development. Irrespective, going forward, with the Permian majors now dominating the most important supply basin arguably in the world, I think that idea of a full field development project uh, is going to, um, you know, is going to exist going forward. I, I think the other issue is there's always been sort of a growth mindset in this business for especially the upstream players. That was not true of the super majors or the domestic integrated oils, as they were called in the 1990s. In that environment, going back now 30 years, there was the mindset of modest growth, just call it zero to low single digit, low reinvestment rates, focus on free cash flow, focus on dividends. That opportunity absolutely exists in shale. I think the question really is, um, is shale different? Is there some reason that legacy oil fill approach uh, is not possible because the decline rates are faster? Yes, the decline rates are faster in shale. But when you're not trying to grow at double-digit to mid-teens rates, uh, the amount of capex that has to go to maintain production is not nearly as high. You need to get off the treadmill. When you do, there is a significant opportunity, especially in tier one acreage, to generate better returns on capital. I'll just say where there have been good results in shale, to some degree that's been masked uh, because perhaps it wasn't a pure play, perhaps it was uh, masked by other assets or what have you. I think as you see more of the especially better run, more responsible EMPs uh, taking this full cycle approach, taking this return on capital approach, uh, the results are going to shine through quite uh, quite nicely. So I, I just say, whether you believe me or not on this, I, I think there are a handful of metrics you can look at to try and gauge, are we on track or not? And so I've called it my coincident EMP ROC success indicators. Not exactly the most catching title, but it is what it is. First, reinvestment rates. Less than 70%, I think, is ideal. I, I suspect EMPs may get away with an 80-85% reinvestment rate at times, perhaps when the oil price falls sharply. But I think over time, you're looking for a, a full cycle or normalized reinvestment rate below 70%. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. That is for another post. Now I'm probably shifting a little bit towards the top two quartiles of companies. Those with the better acreage should be able to sustain or slightly grow production reinvesting less than 70% of their cash flow. As a result of that, they should have sustainable free cash flow. And from that, they should have sustainable dividends or stock buybacks or however they want to get it back to you. Part and parcel with this would be falling organic net debt. I think it's acceptable for companies to do acquisitions. They may do asset sales. If you strip that out, just like we would on the production growth metric, I think the balance sheets should be getting better. So let me stop there. The full note is available on my Substack at uh, arjunmurti.substack.com. Thank you.